Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who has been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen. We invite you to share the daily meditations in these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and teachings of Henry Nouwen and remind each listener that they are a beloved child of God. Now let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of talking with Brian D. McLaren, author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. Brian is a passionate advocate for a new kind of Christianity. Brian is faculty member of the Living School, which is part of Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation. In 2015, he was recognized by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Brian is the author of more than 20 books. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book, Faith After Doubt. Over the years, I have read many of your books, Brian, and found them such a helpful, honest, and life-giving resource in my own faith journey. You dare to address hard questions, and in this new book, you head into, dare I say, really dangerous territory. But in truth, you are fearless and honest about your faith journey, so it's no surprise that you focus on the almost terrifying reality of doubt. Can we be doubters and believers at the same time? Let's start right there, Brian. Uh, well, uh, I suppose when that question uh, raises the question, what do we mean by faith? What do we mean by doubt and belief? And and one of our challenges is that in English, we have this word faith that I think could be a broad word. Um, and then we have the word believe. And then what many people do is they relate the word believe to the word belief. And so here is where things get interesting, because for a lot of people, they define Christian as adhering to a list of beliefs. And, uh, and to doubt those beliefs then makes one vulnerable to not being even considered a Christian anymore. But the fact is, first of all, I think faith is a lot more than beliefs. But also, almost every Christian I've ever talked to has told me that at different times they have doubted their beliefs and sometimes somewhat secondary beliefs and sometimes very primary beliefs. So bottom line is, yeah, I think, I think to be human is to live in, in the tension between faith and doubt. You know, as you said um, in your book, you state that somewhere in the journey of our lives, faith we inherit often stops working for us. Maybe you could yes. share just a little bit of your own personal journey, because I, I think there'll be some that may not know the context of, of, of where you're coming sure. from. Could you help us by just telling us your story a bit? Sure, sure. Well, I grew up in a very strict, uh, what you might call fundamentalist Christian family. Um, uh, a, and my parents were wonderful, loving people. Uh, I had nothing but, you know, a, a just a great Christian example in my parents. But our religious community uh, was very, very oriented toward beliefs. And one of our distinctives was that we thought we had the right beliefs and everybody else had the wrong one. And, uh, and underneath that was an assumption that what God was really concerned about in people was not whether they cared for the poor or whether they loved their neighbors themselves, what God really cared about was whether you had the right beliefs. And, and this had, you know, in a lot of fundamentalism, there's this sense that the Bible is really the center of everything. And so uh, believe, believing in the literal interpretation of the Bible is really essential. The first time I really think I ran up against that was uh, really as a little boy. I was extremely interested in science. I was one of those kids who just loved nature. I loved catching bullfrogs and tadpoles. And I loved looking up at the stars and learning the names of the stars and planets. And I loved trees and plants and all the rest. So I was interested in science. And when you're a kid and you read all the children's books about science, and then you say, well, I want more. And then you go for the high school textbooks about science. Um, then I started learning about evolution. And of course, that was 
just a taboo in my religious setting. Uh, and so I remember one of my Sunday school teachers telling me, um, you have to choose. You can either believe in God or evolution. I remember thinking, well, let's wow. see, you know, I'm 13 years old, uh, seven, six, five, six, seven years from now, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, but that was the first time. And, and what I eventually decided was, especially later in my teens, I had a very powerful set of spiritual experiences that just really put me on the path of, of Christian discipleship. Uh, but I, I realized that I was going to give myself permission to doubt what my church community said I could not doubt, but I, my, but my faith in God and my commitment to Christ were, were very, very deep. So that was my maybe first uh, experience with needing to doubt what my community told me. There's a lovely quote here uh, in your book. It says, for many of us, faith is our map of reality, our map of the universe. It tells us where we are, where we've been, where we're going, where to turn. But as soon as our trusted map stops matching reality, we feel disoriented. We have no idea where to turn, what to do, how to survive. I think that's true for so many. How, how far did you go down that map before you went, this isn't working for me? Well, you know, the interesting thing, I, I mentioned evolution, and what's part of what was connected to evolution was the idea that the earth was created in about 4000 BC. And they did that by taking the names of all the people in the Bible and estimating their ages and adding up their ages. And so the world, you know, couldn't be more than about 6000 years old. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, for me as a boy interested in science, the universe was billions of years old and, and the universe was vast and, and constantly evolving and changing. And that was a very big and dynamic world. And um, for us, not only was the past very short, but the future was very short <laughs> because we believed that Jesus was coming back soon and the end of the world would happen soon. And, uh, and so we had a, you know, a, everything was defined by our religion. And you, you might say that our map was like a, 6, 000, a, a map of 6,000 years of time and that was it. Before that is, is, you know, eternity. And after that is eternity. And we're in this little, very relatively short parenthesis of time. And, and so it, it's not just saying I'm changing some of my religious beliefs. It's saying the entire universe is just way too big to fit into this map. I think as I, as I got older, uh, and, you know, in your teenage years, and your adolescence, you start exploring things on your own. And, and I became very interested in music. I played in a rock and roll band, but I also loved classical music. And I started getting interested in art. And there was, you know, and I, I ended up being a literature major in college. And when you love literature, literature takes you to very deep places in the human experience. And again, the map I was given was very simple. Some things are good, some things are bad, some things are sinful, some things are righteous. And there wasn't really much to think about in the human experience beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so again, I, I felt that the reality that I experienced just had so much more texture and depth uh, than the you know, than the small map I was given. It's interesting because you, you you know, I, I see it through reading your books, the there's richness of you're a gifted writer and communicator. And in a way, it's no surprise that you ended up as a pastor because it clearly um, you can move and inspire. So you, you didn't just kind of grow up in these beliefs, but you, you began to be the person that was carrying them. Uh, that must yeah. have been a real challenge when, you know, where did you kind of, where did the rubber hit the road here? Well, uh, I suppose one thing I should say is the fact that I took my doubts seriously meant that I also took my faith seriously. In other words, for me, religion wasn't just something I did for an hour on Sunday. If, if it was legitimate, if it was real, if it was valid and valuable, I really wanted it to shape my life. And so in some ways, the struggle of doubt intensified my faith and my commitment and that led the way for uh, 
you know, some, as I said, I, I had a couple of very deep kind of encounters with, with God in my teenage years. And I, I suppose because my own faith was a struggle, as I received help, I wanted to pass that help on. And I tended to attract other people who were having spiritual struggles. Now, I say that because, you know, I, I suppose some people are just happy all the time and their beliefs work out just fine for them. But I meet very few of those people. Uh, the people I meet have stories to tell about ways that their faith not only saves their life, but sometimes threatens to ruin their life or, or faith, their faith brings them healing, but it also wounds them and brings them great, uh, great sorrow. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, one of the uh, gifts that I am so grateful for, uh, this was back when I was in high school, and I was part of what was called the Jesus Movement, and it was this very dynamic spiritual time. And someone gave me a book by this fellow named Henry Nowen. And you might be able to remind <laughs> me, I can't, I, I can't remember if the title was In God's Hands or In, uh, yeah, I think it was called In God's Hands. And and there was a, a beautiful photograph on one side of the page and then words on the other. And and I just remember, because I was a Protestant boy, you know, I just felt there was some of that depth and texture and nuance and artistry that I was encountering in life that I didn't feel really had a place in my own religious setting. I remember thinking, whoever this guy is, he gets it, you know, and it, it, and it let me know there were Christians out there who had room for a deeper uh, understanding of life and faith and, and, uh, and had a little more flexibility and more permission to think, to think critically, to think artistically, to think with compassion and empathy, not just with, with judgment. Oh. I think I think you and I were drawn to the very same thing. By the way, I think the book was called With Open Hands. It's a beautiful with title. Yeah, That's With it. Open Hands. That's, That's the it. title of the one that you that was your introduction. <laughs> I still can see the cover because there was I, as I recall two hands sort of cupped open together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I re- I that is still a treasure on my shelves. I would agree with you on that one. You know, many of us are drawn to faith communities because they're places of warmth and safety and belonging. But we don't buy into all the beliefs of that faith community. Yes. And, and um, could a faith community use a standard of belonging other than beliefs for membership? I think, I think it's something that, you know, you raise early on in your book. It's, it's like we do long to belong. That, that's, that is right. And Henry yes. understood that, too, that longing to belong. Uh, but at the same time, you, can't, you don't want to park your brains at the door either. Yes. Yes. I, I heard there were others that had really influenced you, people like C.S. Lewis and others yes. that were allowing room for you to think and uh, think critically about your faith. Yes, and you know, it's interesting as you say that, I think, yeah, C.S. Lewis is certainly one of them, and something C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was a literary fellow, right? So his, his specialty was really literary criticism and and. Uh, uh, I believe it was medieval and Renaissance literature was his specialty, but um, and he wrote fiction as well as nonfiction, and uh, and in fact he wrote the famous Narnia children's book. So he had this, he had a value of the imagination, and and so everything that is out there, whatever is to be known and experienced of God and the goodness and creativity and generosity of God, isn't just known through concepts and doctrines. It's known through beauty and it's known through experience and, and in many ways it's known through suffering. So C.S. Lewis was in that category. And then another who had just a huge influence on me was a Catholic novelist named Walker Percy. Uh, I often say that Walker Percy, I think, is America's C.S. Lewis. He, he wrote amazing novels and also some fascinating and brilliant essays. Um, and again, he brought this sensitivity to the human condition um, that, that, that here, and here's the irony. When I was given that permission through people like Henry Now and C.S. Lewis and, and Walker Percy and later others like Frederick Buechner and oh, so many others, um, I went back and saw that all of that was there in the Bible too. It's just that I, in a sense, many of us are brought up in traditions 
that just read the Bible looking for beliefs to enforce, uh, maybe we could say beliefs to police, and rules to enforce. And, uh, but, oh, there's so much more, uh, so much more going on. Uh, in, in the Bible itself. Well, let's dip into your book a little bit. Let's let's look at some of the things that you develop within this because I think they're quite they're quite helpful. You kind of break it down into four stages of faith development. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you, in a sense, found to be um, a way of of understanding maybe the steps we might go through? Yes. Well, first I should say that there have been, I'm sure, hundreds of theorists who have different schemas or models or stage theories of, of human development. Um, one of the earliest was the, the great romantic poet, William Blake, who talked to, he wrote a series of poems called the songs of innocence yeah. and then the songs of experience. And then there were songs of, that were a higher innocence that had survived and in some ways been enriched by experience. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, around the same time uh, in, in the early 1800s had uh, his own, a couple of different uh, theories. Um, and, and in more modern times, you know, from Sigmund Freud to Jean Piaget to all kinds of other uh, theorists, including a lot of theologians um, uh, now, people have been developing stage theories. And I became interested in them when I was in graduate school. And so I've just studied a, a, a number of them and uh, what I tried to do was look for patterns across and see what resonated the most in my own experience and in my years as a pastor. And so I, in some ways, synthesized the, the work of a lot of brilliant people um, and to talk about four stages of faith development. They're super easy to remember. Um, first stage is simplicity. Obviously, that's where you begin. The second stage is complexity. Obviously, if we live long enough, some of our simple ideas are challenged. Um, third is perplexity. And that's where in many ways we start to lose confidence in the authority figures that taught us those simple answers back in stage one. And then, uh, and, and then the fourth stage I call harmony or solidarity. And I should say that I think a lot of people through a lot of history would start in simplicity and they would stay there their whole lives. I, I think some people would make it into that second stage of complexity. Um, and then they would get there and they would stay there their whole lives. I think some people would get to perplexity and they would stay there their whole lives. I think in many ways, the people that we think of as saints were very often people who went through all of those stages and, and then came to that stage of harmony or solidarity. And, and that's where a deeper kind of spiritual insight came. And then in my understanding, those four stages become iterative, meaning that that fourth stage, uh, harmony, becomes a new simplicity. And if we live long enough, it gets challenged by a new complexity, and the process repeats itself. I, I found it fascinating, and I, I like the fact that it, it can repeat itself. I like that. Um, it's interesting, as I'm looking right now and thinking about going through this, has this been like a life journey for you? You know, you wrote this book now, but have you been thinking about this? I mean, has it infiltrated your work over the last yes. 20 years? Yeah. And, and you've just got new words for it? So I, I remember exactly uh, when I first started thinking that stage theory was going to have some usefulness to me. I was in graduate school and uh, I was a, I had a teaching fellowship, which meant that I was working on a, on a master's in English and literature, but I also had a part-time job teaching freshman English and some other courses. And um, so the university offered us a free, uh, offered us some free training because a, a lot of people who become college professors, they, they're specialists in their area, but they've never actually had education courses. So, uh -huh. so they offered us some training. And one in one of those training sessions, uh, the work of a, a human developmental theorist, a uh, psych psychologist named William Perry was explained. And I remember I went home. I was just, I was just, I felt this is not just helping me to be a better teacher. I think this is helping me understand what I'm going through now as a, you know, 23 or 24 year old young man. 
Mm-hmm. It's helping me understand my spiritual life. And I came home and told my, I was newly married and I told my wife, this really, really helped me. Um, and so that did start me thinking about this. And then in my years as a pastor, I thought about it more and more. And I, and that's when I started talking about it uh, as a way of trying to help people give themselves permission to grow, because this is one of the things that I think religion does. It happens in Christianity. It happens in other religions, too. Religions often tell people, you've got the answers now. You know what's, you know the truth now. You're not allowed to grow. <laughs> You're not allowed. Yeah. The only thinking you can do is thinking to defend what you already think. And, uh, and so uh, it, I found that to talk about stages gave people permission uh, to grow. And in recent years, I've been uh, doing a lot of work with the Center for Action and Contemplation, uh, founded by Father Richard Rohr. And, uh, and what the center is doing is it's also giving people language to talk about how they're, they, they're looking for something deeper and something more in their faith, and they're drawn to a contemplative, uh, a, a way of life characterized by contemplation and action, which, of course, is something that, to me, Henry Nouwen was such a beautiful uh, example of as well. Action, compassion for human beings, people with you know, special needs, uh, uh, compassion for people who w- w- struggle with mental illness and people, just so much compassion for anyone in need and suffering and drawing from deep roots and knowing his connection to God, his belovedness in God's presence. And uh, so as I uh, would share that as a pastor, uh, very, very often people would just say, yes, that helps me. I, I remember people would come up to me after I talk about this and they'd say, I remember the day I entered stage three <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. And, and it, it really helped to make sense of things that, that was happening. And, and of course, I, something I say in the book, as you know, that life is messy, life is complicated, and stage theories like this are only generalizations, But um, and, and there are people who don't fit them. But if you think about it like this, anytime you see a butterfly, you know that butterfly spent some time in a cocoon. And you know that what went into that cocoon was not a butterfly, it was a caterpillar. And so, you know, the idea of stages of metamorphosis are there throughout all of creation. And we shouldn't be surprised that that pattern is often experienced in our lives too. You know, I found it fascinating. I, I when I was reading the comment that you had in 2015 been named by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals, I thought it was kind of forgive me for saying it a bit amusing because I tended to think, and I, and I come from an evangelical heritage. I'm not meaning to put this down yeah. at all, but but yeah. I thought you are actually really challenging a lot of the things that you know, just got hammered down yeah. in the world of evangelicalism. And you're saying there's room to grow and there's room to, and I, I quite love that about you. And I thought it was so interesting that there you were listed amongst these 25 influential evangelicals. So clearly you have a, a liberty to speak to that that audience, to all of us, to all of us. It's, you know, it, it's, it's broad and it's and in fact, in your book, you go beyond speaking to Christians because you really identify the fact that these stages of faith are a, a reality for people of other faiths as, as well, for Muslims, for for Buddhists, for for Jews, for for all sorts of different communities going through this, in a sense, um, stages of becoming and and working towards this this keyword of harmony. You know, it's it's. One of the things that's been interesting for me as I've gotten older and I got, I've got i gotten more involved in uh, interfaith uh, work is to have people of other traditions share it with me uh, some of their story. And you, you start to realize how similar uh, the patterns are, what we go through. Um, I, we've talked about literature a couple of times. Um, I remember many years ago when I read the book, My Name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potok. And um, here is the story of a hyper-Orthodox Jewish boy in New York City who, who had a very, very different life from mine. And yet I remember as I read the book, I thought, I understand. I understand his experience because 
it has so much resonance with my own. Um, one of my mentors used to say, what is most personal to you is most universal to me. And I think there's the sense that when we go down deeper and deeper into our human experience, we find that there's, there is deep resonance with other people uh, who come from very different backgrounds, but we, we're in a sense getting in touch with our common humanity. That's certainly something that Henry Nouwen quoted many times, that that which is most intimate is most universal. That yes, that business yes. of really looking and finding the truth about ourselves. I think one of Henry's great gifts was being able to be truthful about what he was, what was inside his heart, what was inside his mind. And I think that's where so many have been nurtured by that kind of level of honesty. They feel, oh my yes. goodness, that's just like me. I I've been there. I I see that. I understand that. Um, One of the things is this recognizing of belovedness, of understanding that you are beloved and then recognizing it in others. That was another place where I, I, as I read your book, I felt the link to Henry because Henry, in a sense, came through a tremendously deep struggle, you know, in in his uh, almost a, a, a a breakdown uh, of, uh, yes. he was a fragile person in so many ways. Yes. But ultimately, he got very simply that he was God's beloved child. He was yes. God's beloved son that when when the voice of the father said that to Jesus, he said it to Henry, and he says it to each one of us. And I think that's profound because I feel like that's where you take us in your book right now in terms of harmony. Talk a little bit more about that for me. Yes, yes. Well, you know, it, uh, when I was a pastor, uh, Henry's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, came. Do I have the right title? Is yes, that, you do. Uh, the Return of the yeah. Prodigal Son, yes. Yes, because uh, now I'm remembering with open hands. <laughs> but, uh, but that book came out, and I was just captivated by it. And so I actually got, you know, that image uh, of the painting that, the, that Henry references in the book, and I... Uh, had a poster made of it, and I projected it up on the screen. Oh. And I preached a series of sermons on that, uh, on the the story from the gospel, and uh, using that painting and Henry's insights all the way through. And what I uh, uh, what I think I came to realize is, and I don't mean to be you know critical, uh, overly critical, but. I think there's an awful lot of religious activity that gives people the idea that God hates them, gives them the idea that God's disappointed in them, gives them the idea that, that there's just nothing but heartache to God. And part of it is because we've given this almost an accounting approach to spirituality where how many sins have you committed, how many mortal sins, how many venial sins, you know, have you done all the things you need to do to make penance? And this kind of accounting, uh, one of my uh, teachers called it a sin management approach to to God. And, uh, and because of that, we have this deep sense of shame about who we really are. The perfection that's held up being associated with God and spirituality is so far from where we are. And I, I'm sure, you know, Obviously, I don't know the details, but I, I imagine that Henry uh, Nowen must have have grappled with that in himself, of, and he had wrestled with it and come to a place where, at some deep core of his being, he understood that he was loved with unconditional, non-discriminatory love. In other words, a love, a divine love, that doesn't love because we are lovable. It loves because that's the way God is. And here's the interesting thing. When we are loved that way, we actually come to know ourselves as lovable. And uh, I think that that breakthrough that Henry had is one that is shared among, among people we think of as saints or mystics, who, who encounter a non-discriminatory, unconditional love. And when we receive it, we then become capable of transmitting it. 
and we become capable of saying, if that's the way God is, I want to love other people with a non-discriminatory uh, and, and unconditional love. And that, to me, is the heart. That, that brings us to the heart of what Jesus is about, the heart of what the gospel is about, and the heart of what life is really about. So that's, that's why that book always will be so precious to me. And, and in, in a way, uh, he, he challenged us to take this seminal story of Jesus, story of the loving father with two sons, and to say he actually meant what he said in that story. <laughs> mm. I, I love the, the journey that, that Henry goes on to realize that he, he sees himself first as the, the son coming home and then the son standing by and judging, and finally to realize that he is called to be the father. I, I had the privilege of interviewing Henry, and I, I just remember his wonderful words about, I'm so glad you're back. That's what the father said. He didn't say, what have you been up to, or what did you do? Yeah. He just said, I'm just so glad you're back. And I think that is the loving God we want to share with the world. I'm so glad you are there. I love you. You know, not not a big long list of what have you done and what haven't you done, but a big long list of God's extravagant overwhelming love for his creation. And of course, you know, this story comes up because people are criticizing Jesus for hanging out with, quote, sinners. And these are the people who are supposed to be distasteful to God. And if Jesus is a good man, he shouldn't enjoy the company of these dirty people. And and so Jesus tells the story as a way of answering that question. Why do you act the way I do? Well, the way I act the way I do is because this is the way I believe God is. And, and now, I, and it's so beautiful that you bring that up, that, that, that Henry had the courage to say where that story takes us is not just to see ourselves as one of the sons, but then to, in a sense, say, I want to join God with that kind of love for both of my sons, for you know, the religious and the non-religious, the orthodox and the heretics. I, I want to have that kind of, that kind of love. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What, what a, what a, I, I mean, I know this isn't in the creeds, but it just makes me think Jesus was brilliant to, to put together <laughs> that story. Just, it's an amazing story. And I, and I do feel it's reflected, interestingly enough, just as you're saying, in, in what you have, what you've tried to share in your book. I, I just feel that call to harmony, that call yes. to a place where we love, we love extravagantly. We know we are loved ourselves, that God isn't God isn't up there saying, I'm so disappointed in you, you know, but rather <laughs> loving us like crazy. And then, um, in a sense, our job is to welcome others home, to welcome them oh. with a extravagant joy that they are. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I can still hear Henry saying that. I'm so glad you're here uh, as the father. I, I love that. Yes, that's right. And, and you know, in a sense, that brings everybody joy. That, that like, raises the joy level of the universe. Yeah. Because for the person who welcomes someone into their presence, there's joy. I'm so glad you're here. And yeah. for the person who's welcomed, oh, I, I'm so glad I'm not condemned or looked down upon or hated. Brings joy there. And of course, that's where the story ends, that prodigal son story. It ends with a party. It ends with a celebration. Um, so it ends with joy. And then comes that strange, or that, which in many ways is the real point of the story, that the older brother uh, can't join the fun because yeah. he just has to keep keep tabs on who's good enough and you know and, and won't forgive and uh, forgive the past and uh, and and of course it's it's a masterful ending to the story we don't know what the older brother is going to do um, will he have the courage to join the party and you know again in the context in the gospel of Luke that's exactly the, what Jesus does he because these people who are condemning him for or being glad that others are at his table, uh, they, you know, we don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to 
have a change of heart or dig in their heels. There, there was a phrase I came across in your book that I loved. You said, I became more comfortable with God being mystery, a mystery too holy for words. I sensed yes. as I read this book that a deeper faith is taking root in you, Brian, and that you, you say that from that soil, a new sense of God is emerging and arising. Tell me about the God that you want to share with your audience that you know that you've discovered yes well this is the interesting thing there's a, a, one of my favorite songwriters actually a canadian songwriter named bruce coburn has a song he says those who know don't have the words to tell and those with the words don't know so well <laughs> and uh and this is the thing uh that it feels that part of that move from perplexity into harmony is an acceptance of the reality that so much of truth and so much of beauty goes beyond words. Obviously, we use all the words we can. I shudder to think how many words I've had published. But, but at the end of the day, even after all those words, you know, well, God is so far beyond anything we can capture in our words. Even the great, uh, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, there's a story told that he had an experience late in life where he just wanted to burn up all his books because he felt that they were straw compared to this deep experience he had that went beyond words. But I, I, I think one way to say it is that in loving our neighbor, when we genuinely love our neighbor, we see what my friend Jim Finley calls the deathless beauty of another person. And when we love that person and see that beauty, we are, in a sense, loving God and seeing the beauty of God. And when we learn to love creation and we, you know, whether it's we love the intricacy of the white blood cells and the immune system in the human body. I mean, when you study that, I, I have a son uh, who, when he was a boy, uh, he be, was a cancer survivor. And um, I remember learning about, about white blood cells because he had leukemia. And I remember just being in awe. I felt like my body's a civilization and <laughs> there's this <laughs> incredible organizing going on. And, and I never even thought of these different kinds of white blood cells. And here they're doing this amazingly complex work. Uh, and, and you see that beauty and you're in awe and you love it. And then you, you find that in loving that, I'm loving God. And, and so this is what really has hit me when, when it says in the, in the New Testament that God is love. I'm starting to realize, yes. And we encounter God through the experience of love. And that's where that fourth stage harmony, I think, takes us to a different place where we realize, okay, I'm, in simplicity, I thought I would be able to wrestle God into words. And in complexity, I thought I'd be able to sort of do God's work and, and uh, be, you know, uh, become a player in God's project. And and then in stage three comes the sort of deconstruction and doubt and challenging where we want to find out what's really, really, really real. And then in stage four, we find that, you know, what's really real is love. And we encounter God in the experience of love. Oh, I really appreciate that little summary of the of the four. I'm going to encourage everyone, you must get the book. It's really a good book. And it is, it will meet a, a thirst that I think we have for honesty for for truthfulness uh it's a truthy book i have to say i i want to take a little turn here because there was something fascinating that showed up in the middle of your book that was unexpected to me but i'd love you to tell us a little bit about it you ended up in charlottesville virginia on august 10th the night of that horrific march could you just tell us a little bit about how did that happen how were you there and and what did you experience yes so I had uh, some friends who were both pastors in Charlottesville, and uh, I got a call. I don't know if it was in July or early August uh, of that year, 
and uh, or I, actually it was an email, and the email said, Brian, um, you may not have heard this, but there's been several Ku Klux Klan rallies and other white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they said, um, we've been trying to organize clergy here to, you know, stand up with a message of love and encountering this message of hate. Said, but there's a really, really big one coming up in August. And we're really having trouble uh, getting, well, here's what they told me. They said, we've got uh, people of color who are clergy um, who are willing to come. They said, we even have white women clergy who are coming. We're really having a hard time getting white male clergy to show up at this event. And because this is an event where white supremacists who are also very much male supremacists are, are going to be there in numbers, we're really hoping to find some white male clergy would come and they said, they said, we need to tell you there are going to be a lot of guns here. And they were sort of in on the intelligence of what was going to happen. They, they said there's going to be militia here. Uh, there's, it's almost certain that the police will be outgunned. And they told me in their email, um, we would not be surprised if there's violence and maybe killing that happens on that day. They said, but we wondered if you would have the courage and if you'd be willing to come. So it's very hard to say no to an invitation like that. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, so I, I ended up uh, going for that weekend. And but the, the overview is that the big event was going to be on Saturday where this, and, and this was about protecting Confederate statues. Um, and uh, it, but there was another subtext to the story, which was that there's a group of people in the U.S., who, white supremacists, who want to have a civil war and they want to restart the Confederacy. And so their plan was that Charlottesville would be the capital of the new Confederacy. And that's part of what was behind uh, all of this. And um, so uh, on Saturday, there was a big event, but clergy gathered on Friday night. And uh, while we were gathering in an Episcopal church in Charlottesville, just across the street, the Unite the Right rally people also had a march and there was some violence and uh, we actually were not allowed to leave the church because there was fear that we, we might be attacked. And um, I, I know as I walked through the campus there, um, guys were walking along with baseball bats and this sort of thing looking for trouble. So that was Friday night and then Saturday, uh, an unforgettable day. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, I never thought in my life that I would see in an American city uh, that I would see Nazis, people walking down the street carrying Nazi flags alongside Confederate flags and other flags and uh, shouting Nazi slogans. It was a, 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 a very sobering experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just, I appreciated reading that part of uh, of your book and and so often you know we have those moments that we are called to show up and and yeah. show up when we're needed most and it takes a lot of courage i'm glad you were there i know that you were part of comforting those that were mowed down in the streets i mean it was it was terrible it was terrible what happened yes, yes. uh, it, uh there was a, a group of us uh who were uh, uh up a hill and someone ran up to us and said, something's happened at the bottom of the hill. We need clergy down there. So we just went running. And, you know, I, I normally don't, didn't wear clergy garb, uh, but that day we had collars and stoles and so on so that people could find us exactly for that reason. And so we got there and it was just chaos and oh. people were crying. And uh, there, I was near a woman who I thought had been killed. She'd been, knocked over by the car. Turned out she survived, but just around the corner, a woman named Heather Hare, one of, uh, who was part of the counter-protest, uh, was, uh, she was killed. And so there was a lot of hate there that day. And, mm. um, and of course, what we've seen in, in the United States and in years since tell us that there's still a lot of hate out there. And that's why we, one of the reasons we need more and more people to let their faith take them 
to the place of love, to that place of harmony and solidarity with everyone. Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting because the question is, how can we cross this threshold of harmony as a civilization? I mean, clearly, uh, people of faith need to own their faith and wear it and hold and bring it forward in love. Bring it forward in love, for sure. Yes. I loved your, there's various things in the book where, you know, that I have enjoyed so much. I, I loved your salute to Rachel Held Evans. Oh. Uh, tell me a little bit about your friend. I, I just enjoyed that chapter. And uh, Yes. Well, of course, I was writing a book on faith after doubt. And on May 4th, a couple of years ago, which happened uh, to be my birthday, um, word came that she had passed away. And she um, uh, uh, was, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years younger than me maybe 25 years younger than me, but we had met and, um, uh, and I was just very impressed with her. She was a really gifted writer. And when you were talking about honesty, she had the courage to be honest and, uh, and she was honest about her doubts and, and honest about her faith and, and what really mattered to her. So I had so much respect for Rachel and we had, um, uh, and so many people's lives were, well, many, many people would say they wouldn't be Christians today if it weren't for her uh, her honesty and her example. So, yeah, that uh, and, and so to be writing a book on faith and doubt and then to have her pass, it just seemed it was the right thing to tell a little bit about the story of our friendship and, uh, and, and a few quotes from her at the end. I, one of her quotes was, most young adults aren't looking for a religion that answers all their questions, but rather a community of faith in which they feel safe to ask them. And I yes. kind of felt that was the essence of your book, that, you know, uh, the freedom and the honesty to be able to ask the things that are there and not hide from them. I liked yeah. uh, you also quoted Howard Thurman several times, listen to the sound of the genuine. Uh, Great line. Great line. Yes. You know, uh, that those words from Rachel remind me of sort of a, uh, an insight that became clearer and clearer to me in the writing of the book, is that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but pretending that you don't have doubts, that could be a real enemy to your faith. <laughs> and, and it's the pretense and the dishonesty that yeah. ultimately really undermines the integrity of our faith. Well, I, w I was so struck when I read that, that, uh, you know, the facts are 65 million adults in, in, the, in America have dropped out of active church attendance. They say about 2.7 million leave every year. I have a feeling more will leave because of this pandemic, because in a way, those that were kind of going to church out of habit, if it's not yeah. meeting them, I don't know that they're going to come back. So, you know, I, it is kind of a, a moment where in a way we see the bottom dropping out of a sense of commitment to church unless you can create a community where you're free to ask the questions and you're free yes. to really seek a higher ground, higher ground. Yes, yeah. that's right. And, and the truth is watching people drop out of, uh, of church involvement is you know, it's sad for those of us who love the church and love them and so on. But on the other hand, maybe that's the only way that leaders in the church are going to wake up is when they realize that they're driving away people by literally the millions and globally the billions. And yeah. um, so, and we're at a transition time at an inflection point. I, I've heard a lot of people say, as you probably have too, that the pandemic accelerated changes that were already in motion. And that seems to be the case uh, in this in this regard, too. Brian, I, do you by chance have a copy of the book before you? Because I would love you to read the benediction at the end, Blessed are the Curious. Have you, it, it, do you have it before you that you could read that? I would be happy to. Would I you? Would oh, I, I just love it. And I want to say to people that are listening, I also want to say there's some beautiful lyrics from songs in here. You're a poet, a singer-songwriter, obviously. Uh, I want to say before before we go to this benediction that this book is is life-giving. 
it is permission granting, life giving, and faith building because it really is a call to love, which I just hear uh, the saints, Henry, and I certainly hear Jesus echoing that. So, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for those, those kind words. And I'll just say, if this book comes anywhere close to the beautiful example that uh, was set for all of us through Henry's work, I, I'm, uh, I'm humbled and overjoyed. Right. Um, so here is this, uh, this benediction. Thank you. Blessed are the curious, for their curiosity honors reality. Blessed are the uncertain and those with second thoughts, for their minds are still open. Blessed are the wanderers, for they shall find what is wonderful. Blessed are those who question their answers, for their horizons will expand forever. Blessed are those who often feel foolish, for they are wiser than those who always think themselves wise. Blessed are those who are scolded, suspected, and labeled as heretics by the gatekeepers, for the prophets and mystics were treated in the same way by the gatekeepers of their day. Blessed are those who know their unknowing, for they shall have the last laugh. Blessed are the perplexed, for they have reached the frontiers of contemplation. Blessed are they who become cynical about their cynicism and suspicious of their suspicion, for they will enter the second innocence. Blessed are the doubters, for they shall see through false gods. And blessed are the lovers, for they shall see God everywhere. Oh, that's lovely. Brian, thank you so much. I, it's really an honor to, to meet you and to have a chance to chat with you. And I thank you for this good book and for the many. There, I, I looked at the list and there were many that have shaped my life along the way. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful. I thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. Blessings. Blessings on you and on your work and on your life. On we go. And you as well. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for listening to today's podcast. What an honor for me to spend time with Brian McLaren. He's a wonderful thinker and writer who fearlessly addresses the reality of doubt and where this fits in our world of faith. Ultimately, I'm very grateful for Brian's latest book, Faith After Doubt. It may be the very book you're looking for. For more resources related to today's conversation, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we would be so grateful if you take time to give us a a review or a thumbs up, or pass this on to your friends and companions on the faith journey. Thanks for listening. Until next time.